Well, today we are going to be doing a survey through the book of Acts, um, and uh, we don't have any scriptures up on the screen, so if you don't have a Bible with you, could you lift up your hand? We want everybody to have the text in front of, of them uh, so that uh, you guys can follow along and not get lost. Um, this is going to be, uh, as, as we say in the school of ministry, you know, kind of like trying to drink through a fire hose. Um, <laughs> it's just, it's a lot that we're going to go through. Um, for the purpose of uh, laying out our mission statement as a church. So, uh, you know, the last year and a half, um, uh, all the way up through the last six weeks, we have been uh, just doing some serious series that focus on the church and give us a passion for the church, uh, Christ's bride, his flock, his body that he's the head of. And, um, and just the Lord has been leading us through these series in a specific direction as a church that, uh, that we're in the midst of three weeks, three very important weeks for the church uh, where God is laying out his direction for us. Um, probably some of, the, some of the bigger times that our church has ever seen in these three weeks. So I'm really glad that you guys are here for it, and if you know anyone that's missing it, you just got to tell them you got to listen online. You got to do everything you can to be here. Uh, we're in the second out of three very important weeks, and um, and so last week uh, we we saw these church series funnel towards us having specific vision and purpose as a church. Uh, you know what justifies our existence as a local congregation. What is our purpose? Um, why are we here? And so uh, just after lots of prayer and uh, hours and hours of scripture searching and discussion and uh, even just some times of fasting in there, praying for this, um, uh, we've uh, specifically brought out uh, a vision statement that we believe is gleaned from the New Testament. Uh, and that statement Blaine read and uh, it's one that we'd encourage you guys to memorize, uh, just always be talking about as we gather for core groups, as we gather for 242 groups, as you're preparing for children's ministry, for nursery helping, for doing the sound ministry, for, you know, whatever it might be, there's got to be a reason why we're doing it. There's got to be a purpose behind it. And, uh, and this, this vision is that we exist to make disciples in our city and of all nations who are sent out to proclaim and embody the gospel of Jesus Christ for the glory of God. You know, the, the, this is something that's going to be on our bulletins, our brochures. We've painted it on the wall. As you leave this uh, sanctuary, you remember that, you know, we're being sent out of this place to uh, proclaim and embody the gospel in Prineville in our region, in the uttermost parts of the world. And as Art Azurdia said, the intensity of our passion is tightly connected to the awareness of our purpose or our vision. Uh, and then this week, we want to reveal to you our mission statement, which provides an overview of our plans to realize our vision statement, that we would see the vision statement come to pass, uh, what what are we going to do that we could actualize our vision? Um, this this mission statement 
identifies the service areas, the target audience, the values, and the goals of the organization, uh, even in the secular world, that's what a mission statement does. Now, uh, we're going to read the book of Acts today um, as a survey, kind of gleaning some things where we're going to see our vision in the book of Acts. That's what we've gleaned from. Uh, we're going to see the agenda. Uh, we're going to attempt to model our church after the book of Acts in its uh, prescribed things. Um, and so our mission statement, let me give it to you today. It's that as a local fellowship of redeemed followers of Jesus Christ, the members of Calvary Chapel of Crook County regularly gather under the authoritative Christ-centered word in order to purposefully love God and each other while fervently evangelizing the world, allowing the truth of the gospel to define who we are and how we live. And so as we go through the book of Acts today, we're going to see these things uh, already in place, already uh, in action to actualize the vision of the New Testament. And so we'll glean from that. We want to be careful never to take, you know, just go have a meeting and let's make up a mission statement. And then, okay, now let's look through the Bible and try to like make God say what we're trying to say. No, we want to take what God has said in the scripture and we want to conform ourselves to it. And we believe our vision and our mission has done just that. So let's go to Acts chapter one. Uh, and so if you've got your Bible, you don't even have to know tons about where the these uh, where stuff is at today. We're just gonna start in Acts chapter one and we're gonna browse through uh, the next 28 chapters, just touching on certain scriptures every chapter. So uh, it's, it's going to be a lot, but um, we're not going to read verse by verse the entire book of Acts, which would be great if we did, but that's not what we're doing. <laughs> that's for another Sunday. Um, so in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, it's just the introduction. Uh, Luke is writing this. He's also the one who penned the gospel of Luke. Uh, and his focus as a doctor or as a physician was to show the humanity of Jesus. While Jesus is God, he also was fully man. And, uh, and he gave, he strived to give an accurate account in the gospel of Luke of all that he saw and did. And the book of Acts is just a continuation of the gospel of Luke. He writes in Acts 1.1, the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. Okay, so uh, right before Jesus ascended, uh, the Holy Spirit spoke and um, spoke through him, and he gave the commission uh, in, at the end of every gospel, except I believe the gospel of John, there's a specific commission statement to the disciples, and then we'll see another commission statement here today in Acts chapter 1, um, Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. He was assembled together with them and he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the father, which he said, you have heard from me for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. 
And so as he gives the commission before they are to actually go to the outer parts of the world, they're to go to Jerusalem after he has ascended and wait for the promise of the Father, which is the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit coming and dwelling upon man so that they could have boldness. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, he speaks to that. Jesus says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so there's a purpose of the, of the promise of the Father, of the gift of the Holy Spirit. When he comes upon us in power, he baptizes us, he drenches us, and then he continually fills us from that point on so that we can be bold, powerful, dynamic uh, witnesses. The word witness in the Greek is marturo. It means martyr, so that we can be bold enough with the gospel that if it came down to us being slaughtered, we would have the courage to do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we will be witnesses, we will be martyrs locally, regionally, and in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we see to the uttermost parts of the earth. Amen? Well, in Acts chapter 1, verse 12, we see them being obedient to Jesus's command. It says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. And when they had entered, they went up into an upper room where they were staying. Here's the list of the disciples here. These all, verse 14, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. There were about 120 disciples there by name, and they returned to Jerusalem they gathered together, and, and this is all part of what we see at the beginning in the early church. There's this gathering, there's this continuing together with one accord, uh, with unity in prayer and in supplication. This is something that in our vision of regularly gathering together, in our mission to accomplish our vision. And so there they are waiting, they're praying for the promise, for the baptism of the Holy Spirit to come. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, we see it happen. We see, the, we see him come upon them. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is this happened on the day of Pentecost, and this is and so this is kind of known as the day of Pentecost, you know, to the New Testament church. It's the day that the early church was uh, not only filled with the Holy Spirit, but actually uh, overflown with the Holy Spirit. And the picture from John is that just torrents of living water are bubbling out of us when the Holy Spirit comes upon us. He gives us just mighty power to be dynamic for him, to represent him. We also see that when the Holy Spirit comes upon a Christian, there's this manifestation of the Spirit through gifts that seem to come. And, and it's another study for another time, but not everybody speaks in tongues. Not everybody will prophesy, but different gifts will come. In this instance, uh, everyone did speak in tongues and everyone did prophesy. Uh, in the next uh, couple of verses, in verses 6 through 12, when this sound occurred, 
the multitude in the whole city who were gathered in the city came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then when they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? So it was the day of Pentecost. There were many nations there uh, in Jerusalem for the feast. And, uh, and then they hear these 120 disciples just speaking in tongues and speaking in their language, but they're Galileans. How are they? How, how, have, you, have you been to my country before? How do you know? How do you know that? You know? Uh, and, and they go on to, to list off about 19 different nations that were there that heard every other tongue, every other language for themselves. Verse 11 says, we hear them speaking in our own tongues, the wonderful works of God. That's what tongues is, by the way. It's, it's our praying in our spirit to God and declaring wonderful works to God. It's man to God. Verse 12, so they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? What is going on here? And so Peter sees the curiosity. Peter sees this, this gathering together of interested people. Even the next verse is people, some mock, saying that they're just a bunch of drunkards that are, that are talking. But we see Peter uses this opportunity to preach uh, in verse 14 and 15. And by the way, Back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you kind of see an out, a, a large outline for the book of Acts, that, that they would be witnesses locally in Jerusalem, regionally in Judea and Samaria, and then uh, globally to the outermost parts of the earth. And so right now in chapter 2, we're going to see the, the first part of the book, local outreach, take place. In verse 14, Peter, standing up with the eleven, raises his voice and says to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. He begins to preach to them, to address with urgency and earnestness. He preached in such a way that the Holy Spirit would Bring the word of God to bear on men's hearts. We're going to see that here as in the next few verses, Peter preaches Christ from the Old Testament, from Joel, from the Psalms, and he's going to reason with the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah, and they, they had taken him with lawless hands and put him to death. In Acts chapter 2, verse 22 through 24, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it is not possible that he should be held by it. Now, uh, you see in our mission statement that we have learned from the preaching of the apostles that we would gather regularly under the authoritative Christ-centered word. At the end of Jesus's time on earth, after he died and rose from the dead, he met with the disciples in Luke chapter 24, and he explained to them how everything that is written in the Old Testament, it's not just a bunch of stories. It's actually all things that point towards him. They are all prophetic accounts that would lead and point towards the fulfillment within the Messiah that happened to be Jesus. That was, I shouldn't say happened, that was divinely planned out to be Jesus. 
And so he opens up their minds in Luke 24 to comprehend the scriptures that the law and the prophets all pointed to Jesus as their fulfillment. And so here, Peter uses that lesson that Jesus had taught and with just incredible boldness proclaims the gospel to some of the very people that killed Jesus. Now, you might remember that Peter was a scaredy cat just a few, you know, just a little while ago. He was denying Jesus. He even would curse when he was asked if he knew Jesus. He, uh, he was old foot in the mouth, Peter, you know, always saying the wrong things, always, and then scared eventually as Jesus was delivered up. But then two things happened that made him just a bold proclaimer of the gospel. First of all, he saw the resurrected Jesus. He saw the validation of Jesus's ministry. As Jesus says, the resurrection, me coming back to life, would be the sign that I am truly the son of God, that I'm truly God. The second thing would be the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit coming upon Peter, uh, empowering him to be a bold witness of the Lord. We see in verse 32 through 33 that the resurrection is something that would constantly be preached upon the apostles' lips. Verse 32 says, This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. So even in preaching on the baptism of the Holy Spirit and what had happened that day as a fulfillment from Joel chapter 2, he preached the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verses 36 through 41, he, he says, uh, you know, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, Lord and Christ. And when they heard this, verse 37, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? You're telling us that we just killed the son of God? We're in big trouble, like we're doomed, right? And Peter says to them, repent. Repent means to change directions and go the other way. It means to change your mind about something, change your mind about who you have said in the past that Jesus is and who you would say that he is today, who you say that you are in front of God and now who you say you are in front of God. Change your mind, repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3000 souls were added to him. This is some 26 times what the church was at the beginning of the day. This is an incredible revival that took place when the Holy Spirit was poured out and when one man stood up and boldly proclaimed the Christ-centered word. Alexander Huxley was a skeptic on his way to hear George Whitfield preach in the 1700s. One of the guys on his way saw Huxley and said, I would have never thought that you, such a skeptic, would believe in God and go listen to this preacher out here in the fields. And Huxley said, I don't believe in God, but that guy does. Preaching has been called logic on fire. And we see that Peter just lays out with simplicity and clarity. He preached Jesus Christ in him crucified. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, you've got Jews that actually said, crucify him, crucify him. And they say, that guy believes this. I got to hear what he's got 
to say. Be on fire for God and the whole world will come to watch you burn, Charles Spurgeon said. In Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 43, we saw the, the method of church ministry as this church exploded 26 times what it was earlier on in the morning. We see in Acts 2.42 that this early church continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And so we see that there was this continuing steadfastly. As our mission statement gleans from that, we say that we regularly gather. We regularly gather as the early church did. And when we regularly gather, we do what they did. They gathered in the apostles' doctrine. That means that they gather under the truth of the word of God that has been written and passed down by the apostles and prophets. We continue in fellowship, which isn't just donuts and cookies and coffee out in the foyer after the service. Fellowship means to share with one another. It's koinonia. It means communion, to share, to be in sync with one another, to share our hearts, to share our lives, to share our resources, to share our finances, to share uh, our testimonies, to rejoice with those who rejoice, to weep with those who weep. We also break bread with one another. Yes, we eat together. I joke that we don't meet unless we eat, actually, and it's what I do. But uh, we also break the, the bread of the Lord and, the, and partake of the Lord's supper together. We also continue steadfastly in prayer as a church. And we see that the result is that fear came upon every soul. Fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles, the signs and the wonders were never to replace the gospel or the Christ-centered word. They were to validate. You see, a sign is just that. It's a sign. It points somewhere. And anything that the Lord might do in our midst that would be a sign, we would say, you know what? This is to point to Jesus. This is to validate the gospel. Anytime there is a wonder, it should cause us to do what? Wonder. What does this mean? What's the Lord doing? Get our focus on him and not on the sign or not on the wonder. I can't remember who said it, but it was, I, I know that uh, it was my pastor quoting somebody, but when speaking of Acts 2.42, he said, when the church was all that God wanted it to be, then he did all that he wanted to do. Here we are, just God is just shaping our church and giving us a theology of the church. He's directing us with vision and mission and other wonderful, exciting things in these weeks to come. And you know what? We believe that as we are conforming ourselves to the word of God, that he is making this church all that he wants it to be. And guys, get ready, buckle up, because he is going to do all that he wants to do through this local fellowship. Methods are many and principles are few. Methods always change, but principles never do. And so as we look at the word of God, we want to get our principles from the word. And then we might develop some methods to accomplish that. And those things, those are open-handed. There's different methods to accomplish some of these Acts 2.42 type principles. Let's go down to verse 44 through 47. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions in good and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, 
praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. We see just this aspect of our mission statement where we're to love each other while fervently evangelizing the world. We're to love each other. And we see that happening in the early church. They would come and they had everything in common. We're gonna see it later in chapter four, at the end of chapter four. This isn't worldly, fleshly driven communism. This is gospel-centered community that is taking place here. We see that as they were uh, sharing and having fellowship with their possessions, verse 46 says they continued daily. They regularly gathered, really doing those Acts 2.42 things, They praised God, verse 47. They loved God and had favor with the people. So they loved people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Now we want to notice that God didn't add them to the group without saving them, nor did God save them without adding them to the group. And so whenever there's evangelism that takes place, we believe biblically if somebody is saved and responds to the gospel, that God has saved them into a local body of believers. It doesn't have to be Calvary Chapel of Crook County, but this person needs to get plugged in to a local fellowship. He adds them to the number. He saves them and he adds them to the church. But one cannot be added to the church unless they've been saved, unless they've been born again. But verse 47 shows that there was missions happening and that it was the Lord who grew the church daily as people were saved. The theologian with the last name Bohr is actually pretty exciting to read. But he writes, Acts is governed by one dominant, overriding, and all-controlling motif. This motif is the expansion of the faith through missionary witness in the power of the Spirit. Restlessly, the Spirit drives the church to witness, and continually, churches rise out of the witness. The church is a missionary church. And John Stott says, No self-centered, self-containing church absorbed in its own parochial affairs can claim to be filled with the Spirit. The church is to be boldly proclaiming the gospel. In chapter 3, after seeing such a simple method that that works in in chapter 2, in chapter 3, we have Peter and John who are on the temple on their way to pray. And on their way to prayer, they met a lame man who, the song says, held out his palms and asked for alms. And this is what Peter did say. And Peter said, I don't have silver and gold to give you, but I'm going to give you Jesus. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And immediately this guy's ankle bones, you know, there's like a popping and a clicking and they receive strength. And he hops up and he walks and he leaps and he praises God. And everybody sees this guy who for 40 years has been lame from his mother's womb. And there's no doubt that a notable miracle had occurred. And so as people gather around marveling, Peter sees it as an opportunity and he preaches the gospel there at the beautiful gate and into the gate at a place called Solomon's Porch. Uh, Verses 12 through 16 uh, give us this example of Peter's preaching and he gives glory for the healing to God. In Acts chapter 3 verse 19, after this bold preaching, he concludes it with repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You know, we saw in Acts chapter 2, verse 47, that a group of people were saved. 
But they weren't saved unless they had repented, unless they had turned from their sins. And many people come into the church thinking that we can just conform ourselves to kind of having this external appearance of religiosity, or I can look like a Christian on the outside, but on the inside, we have never repented. We have people that come and they say, I don't want to go to hell, so I'm just going to go ahead and become a Christian. You guys, that is not true repentance. That is not godly sorrow that drives a heart to repentance. Even last week, I had a, a man come to me. And he said, I just really don't want to go to hell. I really don't want to go to hell. I really don't want to go to hell. So I'm just going to follow Jesus. And you know what? That's only a little teeny tiny bit of the equation. Jesus is worthy of our life. He is worthy of us to turn from our sins and to follow him. And we ought to hate sin and turn from sin and and turn towards God, whether we're going to be rewarded or punished or not. Godly sorrow brings repentance, but a worldly sorrow just says, oh man, I just got caught, or oh man, I just don't want to go to hell. Guys, that is not true repentance. And so I wonder, as you come into this place today, and you've heard Peter preach repentance twice, have you truly repented from your sins? Have you turned from your sins and to the Lord Jesus? If not, the Bible says that it is the Lord that grants repentance. And you can just say today, Lord, I can see that I've had a wrong kind of repentance. Grant me true repentance that I can turn from my sin in sorrow of heart and turn to you, the true and living God. And what happens when we repent of our sin and we're converted over to Christ? Our sins are blotted out and times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord. Chapter four, moving right along, Peter and John are arrested after preaching such a gospel. In chapter four, verses one through four, uh, the, the Pharisees, the captains of the temple, the Sadducees come. Verse two says, they're greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. You might note that, you'll see that a lot. They, when they preach the gospel, you guys, they preach the resurrection that Jesus had risen from the dead. So they arrested them, put them in custody. It was already evening. But verse four tells us many of those who heard the word believed and the number of men grew another 2,000 people in one day. Guys, this is like a crusade happening in Jerusalem, local evangelism taking place. It's in chapter four, verse 12, that, that Peter preaches and says that there is not salvation in any other for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's a radical statement, good to memorize. But that was Christ-centered preaching. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. You can't look to Buddha. You can't look to Muhammad. You can't look to Confucius. You can't look to Gandhi. You can't look to anybody else but the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we are saved from our sins and saved to eternal life. In verses 13 through 22, Preaching the name of Jesus is forbidden to them. Verse 13 tells us when these leaders of the Jews saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. We see in our mission statement that, that uh, we want to fervently evangelize the world. We want to, fervent speaks of hot and be on fire so that solids would melt. And that's exactly what the apostles were doing. They were fervently, boldly evangelizing, even though they had no, you know, formal, you know, just like seminary degree, they had been with Jesus. And that is what matters. The whole story is that these Jews knew that this man had really been healed. There was no doubt about that. So what are we supposed to do? 
uh, well, let's just threaten them and, and beat them. Verse 18 says they commanded them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus and the boldness of Peter in verse 19. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you uh, or to more to, uh, excuse me, in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle had been performed. Such an incredible boldness in these disciples. Do not, you know, they're getting threatened. They're getting beaten. You don't talk about Jesus anymore. You quit talking about his crucifixion. You quit talking about his deliverance up. You quit talking about his resurrection. Knock it off. And I love it. Hey, should we obey God? or you, you decide. Actually, let me tell you, we can't help but speak and teach the things that we have seen and heard. And you guys, this all comes in uh, for our vision, for our mission, because we are going to be going places where we're going to be told, uh, you can't talk here. You can't tell people about Jesus here. I got persecuted by my phone this week. I was talking to Siri. I was just texting a text to Dan Freoff and I was giving glory to God and Siri rebuked me and said that she can't talk about such things, all right? I was like, oh, oh, Holy Spirit, I really need you right now, you know. It's a hard life, it's a hard life. I can't help but speak the things which I have seen and, and heard. In verses 29 through 31, they are released and as they go back to the gathering of the saints, they tell about the, the persecution that took place. And then they all go to prayer. And in their prayer, they just lift up God and they give God glory and they declare his handiwork. They declare his glory. They quote the scriptures. They just get their eyes on Jesus. And they don't ask that the persecution or the hardness would be removed, but they ask that they would have boldness to continue on through these hard times and to continue through the persecution. And so they pray in Acts 4.29 at the end of their prayer, they say, now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness, they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. And we just see this continual filling upon the Christians that the Holy Spirit just kept pouring out upon them these torrents of living water so that they could be brave and bold and speak the word with courage. Later on in the chapter four, you see this mutual love and care continue as the early church shared in all things. You can compare it to Acts chapter two, verse 46, where nobody had to tell the early church to be generous and benevolent and to care for one another. This was a work of the Holy Spirit in their midst. In verses 32 through 37, though the multitude of those who believed were of one heart, one soul, neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own but they had all things in common and with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Excuse me. And great grace was upon them all, nor was there anyone among them who lacked for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet and they distributed to each one as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostle, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, 
having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So in 32 through 37 here, we just see this incredible love that's come uh, upon the church for each other. And in verse 33, in the midst of all of this love and sharing and caring, you've got the bold proclamation of the gospel. Down in verse 36, you've got a guy who is such a, an encouragement that they had to give him a nickname, son of encouragement. And part of the thing he did as his encouragement was he sold his possessions, his land, and he came and he said, hey, distribute it as you see the need. This is something that's a work of the Holy Spirit that God is even doing in our midst at Calvary Chapel. In chapter five, that story kind of continues of people selling their land and giving it. Ananias and Sapphira are deceitful in the way that they do that uh, with their land. And so they are made an example to the infant church. They lied to the Holy Spirit and tested the spirit of God. It was during the beginning of the church age and there needed to be an example of the danger of hypocrisy so that it would be clear that God hated a deceitful heart, even in the New Testament age. Verses 12 through 16 show the continuing power through the church that even many signs and wonders happened among the people through the hands of the apostles. We see that they were gathered together with one accord on Solomon's porch, yet the rest of the church was struggling joining them because they were afraid. The believers were increasingly added to the church, multitudes of men and women. They are uh, imprisoned in this chapter. We see that the high priests and the Sadducees are filled with indignation that the apostles are preaching again. So they throw them in prison again. But an angel of the Lord releases them from prison and the apostles go right back out to Solomon's porch and start preaching and teaching again. It was like, open the doors, go right back out, start preaching again. And so in verses 27 through 32, we see the apostles arrested again. And, and it said, didn't we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? You filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. Verse 29, but Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. And then they preached the gospel to this, uh, to this judicial court. Uh, this judicial court didn't know what to do with these guys. I mean, they just had these kind of rebels on their hand. And a man named Gamaliel speaks up and he reminds them of two other men who claimed to be the Messiah and led some sort of, re of a revolt. But as time went on, the revolts were squashed and they came to nothing. And Gamaliel says, you know what? This is just like those guys. You know, if it's nothing, it's going to come to nothing. But if it's something, we better be careful lest we be found to even be resisting against God. He was prophetic in a sense because they had been resisting God. In verses 40 through 42, the apostles are beaten and let go. Verse 41, so they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And isn't that an incredible heart in persecution? And then we see that daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. We come back to our mission statement that we as a local fellowship regularly in our second line there, right in the middle, we regularly gather under the authoritative Christ-centered word in order that or so that these other things can happen. And it, we see that in the early church, daily in the temple and in every house. That's regular, isn't it? Daily in the temple, daily in every house. They did not cease teaching and preaching the Christ-centered word, Jesus as the Christ. Chapter 6, there's a 
church growing. In fact, up until this point, the word add has been used. The Lord added to the church. The Lord adds to the church. Chapter 5, the Lord subtracts Ananias and Sapphira. And then in chapter 6, we see multiplication. All right. In verse 1 and in verse 7, we see that, you know, God's a God of mathematics. And now he's about multiplication. And where there's multiplication, where there's growing, there are growing pains. And we see growing pains in the first few verses of this chapter as there's a complaint by the Hellenists in their neglect of the daily distribution of food. And this comes to just a word of wisdom from the apostles through the Holy Spirit, from the Holy Spirit through the apostles, that there should be another office within the church, an office of men who can help serve in the more practical matters called deacons. And so uh, in, the, in the midst of all of this, the church is growing. In the midst of the suffering, the church is growing. And God sees that, man, you know what? There needs to be a distribution, or a, um, a, yeah, distribution of the workload. And so the apostles say, you know what? We need to be able to give ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. We're going to choose seven men full of the Holy Spirit of good reputation who can oversee this matter, this practical service area. And this is where we see deacons being raised up as an office within the church. The result of such wisdom in verse seven is revival. Then after that, the word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So we see the Christ-centered word proclaimed. We see a number of disciples multiplying. These are people that are born again. These are people that are regenerated. And we see that the gospel has transformed their life, as we say at the end of our mission statement, we allow the truth of the gospel to define who we are and how we live. And as the gospel got out to the priests at the end of verse seven, a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Also in this chapter, towards the end, we see Stephen, who's one of the first deacons and that he has a powerful ministry that's going to incite persecution. Stephen in verse eight was full of faith and power and he did great wonders and signs among the people. A group of men called freedmen come and begin disputing with Stephen. And verse 10 says they were not able to resist the wisdom of the spirit or and the spirit by which he spoke. You know, Jesus tells us not to worry about what we'll say, but that the Holy Spirit will teach us or the Holy Spirit will say it for us. One man said, you don't need to defend the gospel, just unleash the gospel. These men would bear false witness against Stephen and have him arrested just as they did with Jesus. And verse 15 says, and all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him saw his face as the face of an angel. As he would preach in chapter seven of this incredible history, Christ-centered preaching uh, through the whole history of Israel, uh, his face is the face of an angel. Charles Spurgeon would tell his school of ministry students, when you teach on heaven, there should be a glow on your face and a gleam in your eye, and there should be a grin on your lips. But when you teach on hell, your own face will do. <laughs> so apparently, you know, there's a part here where Stephen is, he's glowing, man. He's preaching the gospel in chapter seven. Can you tell a joke in the middle of a Bible survey? I don't know. Um, <laughs> Chapter 7 begins this incredible sermon, Stephen preaching the gospel from the Old Testament, Christ-centered preaching. Uh, and then at the end of his sermon, he rebukes the Jews for their hardness of heart, calling them, in verse 51, stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. 
Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, Receive my spirit. Then they knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This vision to make disciples in our city and of all nations who are sent out to preach and proclaim and embody the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ for the glory of God, it will have times like Acts chapter 7 where people will come to the end of their life because of the gospel. We see that in our mission statement, that there will be a preaching of this authoritative Christ-centered word so that we can fervently evangelize the world. In Acts chapter 8, we see this same Saul who was standing at Stephen's murder, and everyone in verse uh, 58 would lay their clothes down at Saul's feet. That means that he was the instigator of this. It means that he was the one giving the green light for Stephen to be stoned, and his men were taken off their outer garments so that they could really get some big rocks and throw them at Stephen. They set their clothes down at the leader of the revolt. It was Saul. And chapter 8 begins with Saul beginning to make havoc of the church, how he breathed murderous threats against Christians. And he was the one, verse 1 tells us, that was consenting to Stephen's death. This began a time where great persecution arose against the church that was in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And, and so what we see here is kind of the second part of our outline of the book of Acts, where now it has been that the gospel was just preached locally. And now because of persecution, people are being chased out of local evangelism. They're being chased out into Judea and Samaria, kind of that next step there. Uh, persecution chases them out. Uh, it's been said that, you know, trying to uh, stop the gospel advancement through persecution is like trying to uh, kick a bonfire to put it out. It doesn't put out the bonfire. It just spreads the flame and it spreads the sparks. And that's what happens in Acts chapter 8, as we've learned from Charles Spurgeon, that the blood of the martyr is the seed of the church. When the church begins to spread, Judea and Samaria outreach begins in chapter 8. The church is scattered and Philip the evangelist, who is also a deacon, travels and proclaims the gospel. How neat that the first martyr of the church was a deacon. How neat to see that the first evangelist of the church here uh, being sent out to this uh, region is a deacon. And Paul tells Timothy, those who serve well as deacons obtain for themselves great standing and boldness in the faith. And so Philip goes up to where a revival is taking place in Samaria. And it says in Acts 8, 4 and 5 that he preached Christ to them and that multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip. They heard him and they saw the miracles that he did. Great and incredible things happened. Then we see the Holy Spirit falls upon believers in Samaria and Simon the sorcerer is rebuked for trying to purchase the Holy Spirit. 
It moves on in Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40, with Philip going out into the desert of Gaza and preaching the Christ-centered word to the Ethiopian eunuch. I mean, Philip is just up in this place where revival is happening. I mean, it's exciting. That's the place where it's, it's getting comfortable. People are receiving the gospel. And then the Lord says in verse 26, Arise and go down to the south along the road, which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. And so he didn't question the Lord. He just went. And I had dinner with a man from the church last night, and we were just telling of, of some men that God has brought us in contact with as a church that, um, that you know, they live in, in a place of constant dependent upon the Holy Spirit. They will die if they don't listen to the Holy Spirit. Uh, men that, you know, the Holy Spirit says, hey, in driving th- or riding a train through India in the middle of the night, jump off this train, I have something for you here. And they just don't question God. They jump off the train and then they go and and the Lord leads them through the the middle of India in the middle of the night to a place where, uh, you know, the the Lord has prepared a man's heart to hear the gospel and and told him, wait for a man. He's coming to tell you of salvation from sin. You know, these kinds of things. it's, It's New Testament, you guys. This is what the Lord wants us to walk in. And Philip walked in it. He went out to the desert. Uh, And behold, verse 27, there was a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority, uh, under Candace, the queen of Ethiopian, who had charge of all her treasury, and he came down to Jerusalem to worship. He was returning, and sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake his chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with them. The place in the scripture which he read was this. It's out of Isaiah 53. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before his shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth? So the eunuch answers Philip and says, I ask you of whom does this prophet say this of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. And so we just see the evangelist proclaiming the Christ-centered word, showing that Isaiah was speaking not of himself, but of, of another man. Verse 36, now as they went down the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see here is water, what hinders me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still and both Philip and the eunuch uh, went down to the water and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so the eunuch saw him no more and he went on his way rejoicing. In chapter nine, Saul, uh, the tormentor, is converted on the road to Damascus while he goes breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Uh, The Lord meets him on the road to Damascus and he, and he convicts him of his sin and says, quit resisting me. I've got work for you to do. And in chapter 9, verses 15 through 16, the Lord tells Ananias, go help Saul out, for he's a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name to the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Saul, right away as a new believer who has the scales fall from his eyes, who's baptized with water, who's baptized with the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 9, verses 20 through 22, it says immediately he preaches the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. 
I mean, how incredible. New believer, you know, has all sorts of training in his BC days, but he's a new Christian. And right away he goes, uh, he goes preaching. People hear, they're amazed. They say, isn't this the guy who's trying to destroy all those who are part of this Jesus movement over there in Jerusalem? Uh, and Saul, verse 22, increases more and more in strength. He confounds the Jews. He dwelt in Damascus and he would prove that Jesus is the Christ. In other words, he would expound upon the Christ-centered word. People didn't like that he was now all of a sudden a Jesus freak, and so they tried to kill him. Saul escapes death as the Jews plot to kill him. He's let down the wall in Damascus in a basket. Later on, I believe in 2 Corinthians, he calls this a great humbling time for him. It's his humiliation. He goes to Jerusalem, but the disciples are afraid of him because he was killing Christians the last time they saw him, and they didn't believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas, the son of encouragement, comes and, uh, and loves he loves, he's part of this loving each other. He loves on Saul and encourages him. The church prospers. And in Acts chapter 9, 31, the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. We see throughout the book of Acts that there were specific bodies, specific churches, Judea, Galilee, Samaria. They had peace and churches were being built up, walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Churches were multiplied. In chapter 10, we see the kind of the beginning of the next part of the outline where, where the gospel is going to go from regions outside of Jerusalem to begin to encroach upon the, the, the global mission field. In chapter 10, verses 1 through 8, a Roman centurion of the Italian regiment named Cornelius uh, has a vision uh, while he's praying, while he's fasting, while he's giving. He's still an unregenerate sinner destined for hell. But the Lord heeds him. The Lord is working this all out sovereignly. And he comes and he tells Cornelius that there's a man who will come and preach to him the words of life. So Cornelius sends a delegation towards Peter, who is south on the same sea line down in Joppa. And at the same time, God is sovereignly working on the other end of the equation. And Peter is, is praying and perhaps even fasting on the roof of Simon the Tanner. And he sees a vision that will prepare his heart for these Gentile conversions in verses 9 through 15. Afterwards, in verses 19 through 20, Peter is summoned by three men of Cornelius to go up north to Caesarea. In verses 19 and 20, while Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. So he goes. He doesn't doubt, but he goes. Lord, what are you doing here? Peter preaches Christ to Cornelius and his household in verses 34 and, and uh, through 43. And in Acts 39 through 40, he's preaching to them and he says, we were witnesses of all the things that Jesus did in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom, by, uh, whom they killed by hanging him on a tree and him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, jump down to verse 43 of chapter 10, to him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sin. Peter preaches the Christ-centered word saying that the prophets in the Old Testament tell us that whoever believes on the Messiah, Jesus will receive forgiveness of sins. And, you know, I, I've been a preacher before where, you know, you're preaching and you're like, is anybody going to respond to this at all? And sometimes you can hear crickets chirping in the background and, and it's more than Kenny Box making funny noises. You know, it's it's uh, it's crickets chirping like, oh, man, Lord, is anyone responding here? Here, Peter preaches 
And Cornelius' family receives the gospel before he's even done talking. And the Holy Spirit falls upon them and anoints them and manifests himself with gifts of tongues and prophecy before he's even done preaching. And so 1044 says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. The the Jews were, were astonished. As many came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the non-Jews, the Gentiles also, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. And they asked him to stay a few days. In chapter 11, Peter goes back to the Jerusalem church and he defends God's grace to the Gentiles, retelling Cornelius' family story in uh, chapter 11, verses 15 through 18. In chapter 11, verses 19 through 24, we, we see that people's hearts have been prepared to, to understand that Gentiles will be getting saved and now the gospel begins to encroach upon the outer world, beginning at Antioch. In chapter 11, verses 19 through 24, so far, the word of God was preached to no one but the Jews only, you see at the end of verse 19. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who, when they'd come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, these are Greek-speaking, Greek-influenced Jews preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was on them. A great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came, he'd seen the grace of God. He was glad, and he loved on them. He encouraged them all with purpose of heart. They should continue with the Lord. For Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, and of faith. Barnabas was a guy who, at the end of our mission statement, allowed the truth of the gospel to define who he was and how he would live. And a great many people were added to the Lord. In chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, Barnabas departed from Tarsus to seek Saul and love on Saul. And when he'd found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was for a whole year they assembled with the church. Just as our mission statement says that the members of Calvary Chapel of Crook County regularly gather. We regularly assemble. And for a whole year, uh, Paul and Barnabas would assemble with this church and they would teach. They would teach a great many people. And it was there the disciples were first called Christians. It was also there that a disciple named Agabus stood up, a prophet named Agabus stood up and said there would be a worldwide famine that seemed to be primarily felt in Judea. So all of the church determined that they would send aid and relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea, knowing that Judea had shared with them in spiritual things, they should share with them in the physical things. In Acts chapter 12, moving right along, Herod kills James, the brother of John, with a sword. Perhaps uh, there's some incredible church history. Fox's Book of Martyrs uh, speaks on that. Don't have time today to get into it. But then Herod imprisons Peter. Uh, Constant prayer, verse 5 says, constant prayer was offered up to God uh, for Peter by the church. And Peter is miraculously freed from prison. An angel waking him up in the middle of the night, taking his shackles off, opening up the doors, opening up the gate of the prison, telling him to gird up his his, uh, uh, his uh, robe and get running as they escape from the prison. Uh, also in this chapter, Herod is killed for robbing God of his glory. He's struck by an angel and uh, dropped down there in Caesarea and is eaten by worms. Chapter 13, here's where we really see just this definitive uttermost parts of the world. This is the third part 
of the outline. The world is evangelized. There's global missions that begin happening in chapter 13. Antioch becomes the missionary hub for the whole world. And in Acts chapter 13, verse 1, uh, in, at the church in Antioch, so by the way, there's a definitive, specific local church that was in Antioch. There were certain prophets and teachers. And in verse 2, it says, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now set apart to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and sent them away. So this begins the first missionary journey out of three that Paul will will do uh, in the book of Acts. In Acts 13, 4 and 5, they are sent out by the Holy Spirit, verse 4, and they go over to Cyprus and they preach the word of God there in the synagogue of the Jews. Throughout the book of Acts, we're going to see that they would go into the synagogue and they would preach Christ from the word of God reasoning with people that he is the son of God. In verses 6 through 12, they preach to the governor of the island or the proconsul. They resist Bar-Jesus, a a wicked sorcerer. They preach in Antioch and Pisidia in verses 22 through 24. And they preach Jesus. Uh, uh, Paul gives a bit of a history lesson just like Stephen did. And he talks about David and that the son of David, verse 23, from this man's seed, the son of David, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a savior. He then goes on to preach Christ's life, his betrayal, his death and resurrection, quoting Psalm 2 and 16 as prophecies of Jesus. In verse 13, or in chapter 13, there's also this blessing and conflict that happened in Antioch. Uh, he would preach to them. Uh, quite regularly in verses 42 through 48 uh, on the next Sabbath, almost uh, verses 44 here, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. The Jews blasphemed, but verse 46, Paul and Barnabas grew bold and, and they say, you know what? God has called us to be a light to the Gentiles and we have a heart to see you Jews say, but you are so hard hearted and you are resisting us and envying us and contradicting and blaspheming and opposing us. So we're gonna quote Isaiah and we're gonna go out to the Gentiles. In verse 48, when the Gentiles heard that the gospel was coming to them, they were glad and they glorified the word of the Lord. Anybody remember that from maybe Psalm 67 last week? When the nations hear the word of God, when they know God, when they uh, and can enjoy God. They're glad. They praise God. Let the people praise you. Let all the peoples praise you. So it's happening here. Psalm 67 is taking place here in Acts 13. And as many as been appointed to eternal life, believe. Uh, persecution arises against them. But verse 51 through 52, they shake off the dust from their feet, just like Jesus said to, and they go to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Chapter 14, there's preaching at this this place called Iconium. Uh, They so spoke, verse 1 says, they so spoke, they spoke in such a way that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. We see in verse 3, they spoke boldly in the Lord and they bore witness of the Lord and the word of his grace, granting signs, the Lord granted signs and wonders to be done by his hands. There was a division there um, and, and so they had to flee and uh, and would go to Lystra and Derby, the cities of Lycaonia. In verse 7, they preached the gospel there. Just always remembering there was this fervent evangelizing of the world. There was this fervent preaching everywhere they went. Even at a place called Derby. Uh, I'm sorry, at Lystra. Lystra, in verses 8 through 20, there was a lame man who was healed. And the community watched the healing and declared Paul and Barnabas to be gods. 
Paul preached the gospel to clarify that there's one God, the man Jesus Christ, but with all these sayings, he could hardly, hardly restrain the people of Lystra to sacrifice to him. Paul ended up being stoned rather than worshipped and was drug out of the city, taken up as dead, but he rose up and went to Derby. In verses 21 through 23, they preached the gospel in Derby and made many disciples. Verse 22, they strengthened the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, just this loving of one another that we see. And he preached and said, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. This is coming from a guy that had just been stoned to death uh, and thought to be dead. Uh, at the Vance Havner says that at the Nicene Council, which was an important church meeting of the fourth century AD, of the 318 delegates attending, fewer than 12 had not lost an eye or lost a hand or did not limp on a leg, lamed or tortured because of their Christian faith. And so Paul the Apostle declared it what Jesus declared that we would be persecuted for the name of Christ. So they appointed elders in every church, verse 23. Again, there's specific churches and there's specific leaders over specific churches. And they prayed with fasting, commending them to the Lord in whom they, in, uh, in whom they had believed. Verses 26 to 28, we read of them passing back through all the cities, heading back to Antioch, which was the missionary headquarters. In verse 27, they uh, gather the church together and they report all that God had done on this first missionary journey, just like we did with Don Chafee a couple weeks ago as he shared from his Uganda journey, sharing all that God had done through them and that he'd opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. In chapter 15, there's a conflict over circumcision. The, the mission to the Gentiles was certainly gathering momentum. They, there had once been just a little trickle of Gentile conversions, but now there was a torrent of these non-Jews getting saved. The Jewish believers knew that God had a plan for the Gentiles to be incorporated, but now the question was, what was the means of the merger? So far, it had been assumed that they would be absorbed through circumcision and by observing the law. Could they really be considered bona fide members of the covenant people of God if they hadn't been circumcised yet? So some Jewish believers were a bit disturbed. These new Gentiles were being accepted into the family without being circumcised. They were accepting the Messiah without becoming Jews. And so these Jewish believers called Judaizers, it's really questionable if they were uh, believers at all, but uh, just struggling with that, that, uh, that transition there, uh, understanding grace. Uh, they came and they preached that, that these Gentile converted men had to be circumcised in order to truly be saved. And so there was a great dispute in the church. Verse 3 tells us that, that the church in Antioch sent them out, uh, sent the apostles out back to Jerusalem so that they could uh, discuss this doctrinal, uh, this incredibly important doctrinal issue. Um, as the Judaizers said that salvation was obtained uh, and maintained by works. Uh, the Jerusalem Council, as you've read the chapter, would consider the matter and the testimony of the Gentiles' conversions are remembered. James stands up and recounts the gospel, which shapes who Christians are to be and how they are to live, just as our mission statement said. As we come and we sit under the authoritative Christ-centered word, uh, that uh, allowing at the end there, allowing the truth of the gospel to define who we are and how we live. And so the conclusion is shaped by the gospel. And they said, you Gentiles don't need to be circumcised. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. 
Uh, but for conscience sake, abstain from sexual, you need to abstain from sexual immorality and uh, from things sacrificed to idols. Uh, the ministry then moves to Syria in verses 30 through 33. They take the letter from the Jerusalem council, which has removed any type of yoke of legalism, and they read it to, you'll note, the gathered multitude. Its contents are rejoiced over and the brethren are exhorted and strengthened with many words. This is all part of loving God and loving people. Verses 36 through 41, Paul and Barnabas will have a division amongst themselves over John Mark. Each would go a separate way. Barnabas would take his uh, nephew, John Mark, and Paul would go with Silas through territories they had ministered to before. And it says that they strengthened the churches. Again, specific churches we see there. Chapter 16, Timothy joins Paul and Silas in Derby. Uh, they would deliver, verse 4, the uh, letters and the decrees for them to keep. Verse 5 says that the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. There would be a Macedonian call after a series of shut doors. Paul has a dream that a man from Europe is calling missionaries to come and help them. And so they conclude, verse 10, that the Lord has called us to preach the gospel to them. Uh, some of the converts in this city are Lydia, who's a seller of purple scarlet, a demon-possessed girl who uh, they exercise the demon out of, and a Philippian jailer who, uh, through a miracle of the Lord, believes upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He and his household are saved. In chapter 17, they keep preaching the gospel. In Thessalonica, we just want to note in verse 2 that they reasoned with the Thessalonians from the scriptures explaining and, and demonstrating that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ, they would say. Uh, they have a ministry in Berea with people who would take the word of God and search, search it to see if the things that the apostles were preaching was true. And then later on in chapter 17, beginning at verse 17, there's this incredible ministry in Athens. As, as Paul preached the resurrected Jesus, he has an opportunity to go up to the Areopagus or to Mars Hill, an incredibly famous place for philosophers to philosophize. And he would preach the gospel there in a new context, uh, declaring not so much a way that you would to Jews, but a way you would to pagans. Uh, chapter 18, the ministry to Corinth. Uh, takes place kind of south of Greece there. He reasons in the synagogue every Sabbath, verse 4. Um, Paul was compelled in verse 5 to uh, testify to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. In verse 11, he would teach the word of God among them. And then Paul would return to Antioch. He would go up and greet the church there in verses 22 and 23 of chapter 18, strengthening the disciples. The great ministry of Apollos there, uh, where even Apollos is taught how to preach the scriptures um, Christ-centeredly. Chapter 19, Paul goes to Ephesus and teaches the disciples of John about Jesus and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. They are baptized with water as well as with the Holy Spirit, and then they begin to speak with tongues and prophesy. In, in Ephesus, Paul reasons boldly in the synagogue for three months, persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. In verses 8 and 10, he reasons daily in the school of Tyrannus. In chapter 20, Paul embraces the Ephesians and encourages the brothers in Macedonia, calling the disciples to himself and embracing them in chapter 20, verse uh, 1 through 3. There's a gathering in Troas in Acts 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, we see a regular gathering. 
Paul was ready to part the next day and he continued a message until midnight. It's going to be what this one's like. No, we're almost done. <laughs> Poor Eutychus falls out of the window and, and is taken up for dead there. <laughs> Eutychus too, if you would have fallen out the window. No, I'm kidding. That's a poor pun. Paul exhorts the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verse 17. From Miletus, he sends to Ephesus and he calls for the elders of the church. Now notice there's a specific church in Ephesus and there's a specific group of leaders over that church who are accountable for that church. Uh, he exhorts them and he shares from his own example in verse 20 how he kept back nothing that was helpful but proclaimed it to them and taught publicly and from house to house testifying to the Jews and the Greeks repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus. He says in verse 26, to this day I'm innocent of the blood of all men for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. In chapter 21, Paul travels to Jerusalem. He's, he's warned not to, but on his way through, he meets with a lot of different Christians and he loves on them and he encourages them. And when they hear of the ministry that he had to the Gentiles, as he makes his way to Jerusalem, the early church glorified the Lord that the Gentiles are learning and knowing Jesus. The gospel would shape who Paul was and how he was to live as he's exhorted to take a vow in order to have some kind of ministry to the Jewish brothers while he's in Jerusalem. He contextualizes himself in the gospel, letting the gospel shape who he is and how he's to live. As he's there worshiping in the temple, a mob is formed and a riot ensues, so much that a Roman must come and bind Paul with chains, leading up out of the courts of the temple and into the barracks. But while he's on his way up the stairs to the barracks, he sees an opportunity as he's on a platform to preach the gospel. He shares his testimony, all of what happened in his life and how the Lord has now called him to the Gentiles. And upon hearing that, they want him dead. In chapter 23, Paul would stand before the Jewish Supreme Court called the Sanhedrin, which is comprised of a divided faction called Pharisees and Sadducees. The Pharisees don't believe in angels or a resurrection. No, I'm sorry, they do. The Sadducees are Sadducee because they don't. And so Paul tactically tries to get to Rome, as Jesus said he would, so he can boldly proclaim the gospel at the center of the known world. He tactically causes a faction between the two parties in the Supreme Court, and they can't charge him or do anything that day. In chapter 23, Paul's road to Rome begins. There's a plot against Paul, and Paul is sent to Felix in Caesarea. It's on the coast by 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen at, uh, I think it was 2 o'clock in the morning. In chapter 24, Paul is accused of division and sedition. Paul defends himself in verses 10 through 21. As he does, he says, I believe in all things that are written in the law and the prophets. And what do they declare? That Jesus Christ is Lord. In chapter 24, verses 24 and 25, Paul preaches to the Roman uh, leader in that area, Felix and his girlfriend, Drusilla. Uh, they heard him concerning faith in Christ, verse 24 says, and he reasoned with them, verse 25, about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Felix hears the gospel, is afraid, and says, go away for now. When I have a more convenient time, I will call for you. Felix brings up Paul's case to King Herod Agrippa. Uh, he realizes that Paul is preaching about a certain Jesus who had died, and Paul affirmed him to be alive. Paul preaches in chapter 25, verses 23 through 24 to King Agrippa and his uh, gal Bernice. In chapter 26, verses 15 through 18, Paul shares his testimony with Herod Agrippa in, in incredible boldness. And 
Herod parries Paul's call to Agrippa by saying, you are mad, Paul. Much learning has, dri- has driven you mad. And Paul says, I'm not mad, most noble uh, Festus, but I speak the word of truth and reason. And Agrippa says, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. But Paul says, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both and almost all together as I am, except for these chains. It's a good lesson for us that almost Christians are not Christians at all. In chapter 27, the voyage for Paul to go to Rome begins. Paul warns of the doom of the ship, but his warnings are ignored by his friend, the centurion Julius. Incredible torment hits the ship through the storm Euroclidon in the Adriatic Sea, and Paul's conduct on the ship is respected by all. In chapter 28, Paul Paul is on the island of Malta, bitten by a snake while gathering firewood, and the natives believe him to be a murderer whom justice will not allow to live but he shakes the snake off, off into the fire and suffers no harm. So now they consider him to be a god in verse 6. In verse 20, uh, chapter 28, verse 10, they are honored by the islanders in many ways and provide things that are necessary. While they're there, a leading citizen on the island, Publius's father, is sick with severe dysentery. He's prayed for and he's healed. The brethren in and around Rome are encouraged by Paul as he finally makes it to the outskirts of Rome. In chapter 28, verses 13 through 15, in verse 14, they found brethren and were invited to stay with them for seven days. Verse 15, from there they went and went, the brethren heard about us. They came out to meet us as far as Appi Forum in the three ends. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. In verses 17 through, uh, through 31, Paul has an encounter and a message to the Jews living in Rome, and he tries to explain to them, I never did anything against the Jews when I was in Jerusalem. And in verse 21, they said to him, we never received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have we had any of the brethren came report any or speak any evil of you. Verse 22, but we desire to hear from you what you think. For concerning this sect, we know that it's spoken against everywhere. Verse 23, so when they had appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning to evening. Christ-centered preaching, you guys. Verse 27, from the hearts of this people, uh, though some reject, some receive him, and he quotes again that, uh, that the hearts of the people are closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears. The book closes in verse 31 with Paul preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. You guys, let's stand. You guys, we have just sort of read through the book of Acts, all right? Yes, we sprinted through the book of Acts. And I hope you see how we have come to this vision as a church and how we've come to this mission that describes who, who, who's to be ministered to? Who's the church? Who's part of the church? Uh, who's to gather when we're to gather? How we're to treat each other? What we're to be doing when we're to gather? All of these things, how we are to accomplish the vision of the church. As a local fellowship of redeemed followers of Jesus Christ, the members of Calvary Chapel of Crick County regularly gather under the authoritative Christ-centered word in order to purposefully love God and each other while fervently evangelizing the world, allowing the truth of the gospel to define who we are and how we live. Let's close with a song.